Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Active Towns Podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. My name is John Zimmerman. I'm the founder of the Active Towns Initiative, and I'm truly honored to serve as your host each week on this podcast journey. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's always wonderful to have you along for the ride. Today is Monday, June 14th, 2021. And yes, I'm a few days early with this next episode because I'm hitting the road later today as I'll be making my way to Indianapolis for the Walk Bike Places Conference. So that means you get this conversation with Melissa and Chris Bruntlett talking about their exciting new book, Curbing Traffic, The Human Case for Fewer Cars in Our Lives, now. And for the second week in a row, this is a really long discussion. So I'm gonna keep this intro short and sweet with only a couple very brief reminders. The first is to acknowledge that this episode is being brought to you by the generous contributions of our donors, sponsors, and monthly patrons on our Patreon page. And if you're able to help out, please just head over to my website at activetowns.org and navigate over to the donation page for more information and options. And finally, if you haven't done so already, please be sure to subscribe to, rate, and review the Active Towns podcast on your preferred listening platform, as this helps to ensure that you won't miss an episode and with its visibility. Thanks. Okay, let's roll right into my conversation with the Bruntlets. Melissa and Chris, it's so wonderful to connect with you here today. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast. Thanks for having us. It's uh, our pleasure to be talking to you again, John. An absolute pleasure to be with you from across the Atlantic. I always start conversations with you, reminding you that you are responsible for this mess that you've unleashed on the world, the, the Bruntlet uh, in the Netherlands, uh, in your introduction to Heather Boyer and everything that has ensued. So uh, I hope you're proud of yourself. <laughs> well, uh, just to be clear, <laughs> uh, you guys were, you know, had had the idea and you, you know, and you and you and I, Chris, you've been on the podcast before. So we talked a little bit about the history of of your trip to the Netherlands and, and spending some time over there. What was it? It was like five weeks and and doing the the journalistic, uh, you know, approach to it and writing, you know, for uh, the paper there in the Vancouver area, but, uh, there was more to be said. And so you two had the idea already. You were ready to write something. You were just dying to write something. And, uh, it was, yes, I, I, I did have, I do know Heather and, and had that opportunity to facilitate that introduction. It's been my absolute joy and pleasure. And, uh, you know, and I've had the chance to, to visit you there in, in Delft and see your, your new hometown. And, uh, in fact, I can remember the evening that we were all sitting down and, and, you know, having a beer and chatting and, and, and you said, yeah, I think we need to write another book. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, are you sure (laughs) you remember the last one you wrote? Um, but, but there was a reason why you felt like you needed to write another book. L- let's talk about that. Why another book? Why this book? Why now? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an excellent question. And to be fair, I think when Chris made that statement when we saw you, I was not fully on board for exactly the reasons that you were saying, are you sure? <laughs> but I think in the weeks and months that followed, there was this realization as we spent more time living here of the little things in terms of our quality of life that really began to change because of 
the fact that we're living in a place with fewer cars. And so a lot of those stresses that we had in Vancouver, without fully realizing it, had melted away. And so, yeah, over time, I think we began to realize this was something really important to share with people because not everyone has the privilege to travel here and experience it for themselves and take that with them home to help change their own cities. And so, yeah, it was really about putting those experiences down on paper and hopefully trying to help people understand not that they need to move to the Netherlands like we did, uh, because not everyone can, but that this is important for every city to enjoy the quality of life that we've come to enjoy. Now, Chris, a part of the the why now, too, was that you had mentioned that you guys were sort of like getting into the groove of things and you didn't want to miss the specialness of it being new. D- dive a little bit more into that. Yeah, I think that was the other uh, urgency in terms of getting this book down on paper was we could feel the magic being here, the, the amazing uh, sensations of living in a city with fewer cars. But we gradually found ourselves losing that magic, becoming immune to it. Uh, the little things that we used to thought were joyful and uh, magical were becoming mundane very quickly. And I think it just speaks to how we are, as humans, uh, really adapt to our surroundings, whether they're very high stress, high car environments. Uh, we don't think much of traffic noise when we're immersed in it. But when we're brought out of that situation, we suddenly uh, recognize what was good or about, uh, bad about that situation. So while we still had those magical feelings, while we still uh, really understood what was uh, special about Delft and other cities in the Netherlands, we wanted to try and capture that uh, down in words for fear of, uh, and even as we sit here now, two and a, two and a bit years since we've, uh, we've moved, and especially post-COVID without being able to travel to other parts of the world, um, we now find ourselves kind of taking this for granted and, and thinking, well, isn't the whole world like this? Uh, when all it will take is one trip to London or Paris or, or Zurich uh, to really appreciate uh, what it is that makes this, this place and these cities so special. Yeah, that's kind of a reoccurring theme, too. I mean, you kind of kick off the book of talking about, you know, that whole thing of you both have the opportunity now with your, your new jobs to be able to travel away and then come back. And that experience, that shocking experience of going away and going, oh, yeah, this is much different. And then you come back and you're like, ooh, <laughs> this is like, oh, yeah, you know, specifically like with noise, you know, it just you, you, you get out of the train station there in Delft and you're like, oh, wow, what is that? Oh. That's silence. Yeah. <laughs> and not not deafening silence. Melissa, d- describe the silence a little bit more. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting experience because uh, we actually just traveled to Amsterdam a few weeks ago. And I had that similar moment because it's been a while since we've been there. And my memory of Amsterdam, having lived in Delft now for so long, which is, you know, only 100,000 people, a quiet city, uh, was that it was going to be loud and bustling, even though you're not hearing as much of the taxis you know, you still hear that ambient noise of a big city. And we walked out of the station and you could hear the bikes, you could hear the wind, a few birds, and that was it. And it was like, oh, it's really quiet here. And that's, that's our experience when we come back to these places is, you know, when we travel away and come back to Delft, you walk out of the station and you can hear birds singing at nighttime, you hear the nightingales, which is, which is really lovely. And just the sounds of humans as opposed to the sounds of cars. Yeah, the sounds of humans. 
And, you know, that's embedded in, in, in the title of, of your book. So it's Curbing Traffic, the Human Case for Fewer Cars in Our Lives. And, you know, that's the follow-up. This is the follow-up book to your first book, Building the Cycling City, the Dutch Blueprint for Urban Vitality. And you describe them, you describe these two books in your book, this latest book, as the why and the how. And so... <laughs> It makes me think, too, that, you know, it once this book gets released into the wilds, uh, you know, people who are just discovering the two of you and uh, and this topic, they may end up wanting to read this book first and then that book so that you dive into the why and really get excited about it and then go to the how. Now, you, you just you mentioned a couple of things there that I want to, uh, you know, kind of touch upon because it is that human experience and that's how your chapters are are sort of outlined you know it's these various human experiences and you start off with a nice little introduction of kind of like what it's been like living in a low car city and that's where some of these stories come out of like you know oh wow this is cool in the spirit of what you were saying, Chris, of, of wanting to capture it while it's still fresh so that you don't get to that point of becoming complacent about it. You go through these different human experiences and you start off with one of our favorite areas that you and the, the three of us have talked about before, which is the child friendliness. Let's talk a little bit more about what that means, because what do you mean child friendly city? Cities are supposed to be serious. Well, I mean, we, we start... Uh, the chapter with a quote from our friend Charles Montgomery, who's the author of The Happy City, who we interviewed him for an article we were writing, and he posed this really provocative question, which was, uh, you know, our society claims to care about the well-being and health and safety of children, but we build uh, environments that are robbing them of their freedom, that are really dangerous, uh, and require them to be supervised by their parents 24-7, uh, especially when they're leaving the house. and. Uh, what would a place that was the opposite of all those things look like? Well, we, we knew as soon as we came to Delft that that was uh, exactly that place because not only were we seeing children cycling around, uh, free-range children, if you will, um, our own children uh, then at the time were 10 and 12, uh, spread their wings and flew like we, we anticipated but could have never imagined because it wasn't long before they were cycling two or three kilometers to school, four or five kilometers to neighboring cities, taking the train to Groningen 200 kilometers away. I mean, uh, and these are all things that we wanted to do that we flirted with in Vancouver, but neither the culture or the, the built environment supported us in those decisions as parents because there were so many heavy arterial roads, there was so little cycling infrastructure uh, that really for our own children's safety, we needed to be by their side anytime they uh, went out and about. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I get what you mean on that because I, I actually joined, uh, you, you and your family in your, your neighborhood there in, uh, in, in the East Vancouver neighborhood, um, and, and did a walk to school and it, it needed to be sort of like a little bit of a supervised walk, you know, to get, to get to school. And the, the great thing that I loved about in this particular chapter is the description of, of, you know, the archipelago and feeling like there's little islands of, oh, it, we're okay here, but beyond this little island, it, it, it's difficult. Melissa, talk a little bit more about that concept. 
Yeah, well, it's so it's something that was introduced to us first by Dr. Stephen Fleming, who uh, we interviewed for the first book, but then again discussed with Dr. Leah Karsten, who we interviewed for the second book. Uh, this idea that your home zone essentially becomes a bit of an island. So where children spend their time, whether that's directly on their street, in their front yard, in their home, that's their island. And then because of the way our streets can be quite hostile in a lot of cities, the space between the areas that they go, so the space from the home zone to the school zone to the activity zone, are basically vast oceans that are navigated by their parents and they don't necessarily create that connection of how do they get from home to school to everywhere else. And so, yeah, it essentially creates these islands where everything in between is a mystery for a lot of kids. And, you know, we've seen studies, um, not, not us, but I mean collectively, of how children who are part of this backseat generation that we talk about in, in this book where they're shuttled around in SUVs in the backseat of their parents' cars, when they're asked to draw their, their trip to school, for example, everything between home and school is a blur. Whereas those kids that enjoy that freedom of movement, that get to walk, where the cities aren't designed as much as these islands, where they, can, they have a little more freedom to roam on their streets, they can describe the trees they pass. They can note the home with the interesting window or the place that has the orange tabby that's sitting there every morning. You know, these are things that they start to realize and connect. And it, it makes it much more of a, a place for them as a place out of bounds. Yeah. And getting back to the, the culture side of that, too, when we're overly protective and we're sort of that bubble wrap sort of approach to it, you lose quite a bit. Chris, talk a little bit more about some of the things that, that, you know, that generation, these children are losing. Great paradox, isn't it? By creating more safer cities, we're actually giving children opportunity to take risks, be a little more dangerous and, and hurt themselves once in a while, but learn from their mistakes. And uh, we use the tell the story of our son who unfortunately fell off his bicycle and broke his arm one of the first two months that we were uh, in the Netherlands, uh, but because he was on segregated infrastructure, he didn't really have any life-threatening or life-saving injuries. And, and as a result, he's learned to be more resilient. He's learned to pay attention when he rides his bicycle. Um, and, and, you know, a broken, a broken bone is not the end of the world. But uh, unfortunately, by shuttling kids around in the, in the backseat generation or, or keeping them indoors all the time, they're not out there in the world learning through play, learning to take risks, learning to assess risks. Uh, learn to bounce back from setbacks. And this is, you know, now coming home to roost in generations of college students that, that administrators refer to as teacups and, and you know, new employers have, have uh, dubbed these, you know, children that sometimes bring their parents to their job interview because they're not capable of being independent, uh, autonomous uh, adults. And, and so there's real knock-on effects uh, for us as a society, raising kids in cars that we're only just beginning to understand now. Yeah. Yeah. So how did it go? How did the kids adapt? Uh, yeah, I think it's always a tricky question to answer because um, I think online people perceive us as having this wonderful fairy tale life where everything has come quite easily. Our kids adapted very quickly. They're these perfect little Dutch kids now. And um, I always want to fill that caveat that they're still kids and they still we still had our sad times. Uh, they're, you know, learning a new language that is uh, arguably quite difficult to learn, given Chris and I are struggling a little bit ourselves, you know, it takes time. And so 
on the on the whole, I think the adapt adaptation to living here has gone, I think, as well as we hoped it would. There was, you know, struggles socially and with school, but overall, the kids are really enjoying this freedom that they have. Uh, and you know, we check in with them from time to time, and and recently did, uh, and. We asked, you know, I know a year ago, you weren't too happy still that we were here. You were missing your friends back in Vancouver. Uh, how are you feeling now? And both of them said, no, we, we really like it here. They like the quietness. They like the calm. They like the fact that we are comfortable to just let them do what they want to do. We are now enjoying the ability to say, okay, you want to hang out with a friend after school? Just send us a text and that's fine. And make your way home by this time, which is exactly what we all want for our kids to say, yeah, go after school, go play with friends and just be home for dinner. And we're now getting to enjoy that because we live in an environment where that's possible. And because of that, they're enjoying a lot more social independence uh, than they were enjoying when we were in Vancouver. Yeah. Setting them up for an opportunity to thrive at the at the level of development that they're at now. But then also, as you, you mentioned, uh, Chris, that ability to have a sense of adventure, learn some things, make some mistakes and be able to eventually, you know, get to that next level of development and have some learning <laughs> that kind of goes along the way that isn't, you know, the parents just preaching. <laughs> it's like they can actually learn stuff and experience stuff and the joy of being able to experience stuff on their own and be able to discover stuff. How cool. Yeah, it's it, I'm I'm super super excited for, you know, for for you, your family because I know this was one of the main reasons that you wanted to uh do something so crazy as to pick up your lives and <laughs> yeah. go there. I mean, it, it wasn't about Chris and Melissa. We knew Chris and Melissa were going to, you know, really kind of like this is cool, this is a great opportunity, but you didn't weren't really doing it for the two of you. I mean, it was a family unit. You really believed that, you know, and you talk about it in the book that, you know, this was an opportunity for, for them to truly uh, thrive. Yeah, I think, you know, Chris would probably definitely, I mean, we, we said this time and again, when we were preparing to move here, everyone's like, oh, you're just moving because of the bikes. And then we did move here. Oh, you just moved there because of the bikes. And we've had to say time and again, no, it, it wasn't about that. And, and actually, we've surprised a few Dutch people when we've said it wasn't, I know we work in cycling, but it wasn't about that. It was about giving our kids that opportunity for freedom and independence. I mean, it still makes us laugh when we talk to native Dutch people that have grown up here. They're always trying completely perplexed why we would trade the, the mountains and the ocean and the, uh, the vastness of Canada for their, their cramped little uh, flat monotonous country. But once we start talking to them about these things they take for granted, including the freedom of their children, uh, they just assume it's a cultural thing. And, and we have to really explain to them, no, it's, it's a, the way that the streets are built. It's the infrastructure. It's the traffic calming. These are very conscious policy decisions that are made by city planners and elected officials to create these conditions. Uh, it's not that the Dutch are more prone to uh, give their kids freedom. It's that the cities are built to uh, support them in that style of parenting. Yeah. And you do touch upon it a little bit in, in this book, as well as in your first book, uh, that that's kind of one of the sub themes and the stories of the Netherlands and how the built environment has evolved and transformed into what we see now is that, you know, 
that was a central tension that existed in the 1970s as the fatality rates started to increase, uh, especially with the children. And then the, you know, the stop to kinder mart, you know, movement took place. So, I mean, that was part of the genesis, you know, it was the kernel that actually was there from the very beginning. The, the children were literally on the front lines in the war on cars, holding signs and, and, and moms, and, and, and it was part of this, uh, this turning point in the early 1970s was, yes, making our streets safe for children, uh, not just to walk and cycle to school, but just to play outside their front door. And it's something elsewhere in the world we've just completely sacrificed at the altar of the uh, private automobile. Yeah. I want to stick with the all ages and abilities sort of theme that we have going here and skip to chapter number 10. And, you know, because the other spectrum of, of, of this, when we think of all ages is, yeah, but what about the elderly? How the heck are they supposed to exist with not being able to get into their automobile and drive, you know, door to door everywhere for everything? Yeah, it's it's an interesting argument, uh, and it comes up, and there's there's parallels to accessibility as well, which is a different chapter. But it's this idea that in order to be able to participate in society, you need to have access to a car. And be it beginning of life or end of life, there is a point in our lives where we simply can't drive, whether we are too young to drive or you're too old to drive. And so when we mandate that our cities need to be car uh, accessible, we are basically telling people that when you're too old to drive, you need to be reliant on someone else or else you can't participate in society. And, you know, that has real knock on effects. You, you hear about these loneliness epidemics in seniors because they can't leave their house. Uh, you hear about them feeling trapped because the public transport doesn't allow them that freedom of movement uh, with for themselves uh, based on whenever they're available, if they're available. Um, and even so much as the way the public space and the realm is designed, you know, thinking about little things like seating is so often forgotten. We forget that, you know, as we get older, we simply can't walk as far. And so that availability for places to stop and to rest um, really hinders people from even taking that trip in the first place. Uh, and so one of the things that we've really come to appreciate uh, and I don't think either of us have ever taken it for granted is when we're walking around and you see old couples, you know, in their 70s and 80s walking around the city center or cycling amongst the polders. You know, that's something I think for both of us, we we look forward to in our senior years, knowing that we'll be able to still get around and, and be a part of our city, even when maybe we're a little less mobile. Right. The chapter really dives into the fact that this is not all about bikes. I mean, it, this is about what it means to have a neighborhood, a community, a built environment that takes into consideration those factors that you just mentioned, Melissa, you know, that, that help make it uh, a place where, you know, somebody can age in place. Chris, why don't you pick up on that and, and dive a little deeper into to some of the themes that came up? Because it, now, now that neighborhood that you were referring to, that block that you were referring to, was that your original neighborhood or is that where you're at now? Yeah, so we, we uh, finished this book, wrote about our first rental property that we lived in for the first year and a bit, and then uh, delivered the manuscript and bought this dream uh, house situation on the canal, which is 
even better than, than our original living conditions. But we're not far from our old house and we still run into Peter, who is the neighbor that we write about and interview for the book. We actually just ran into him yesterday and, and, and run into him on the street all the time because, again, those, those kind of high, high situations, those uh, spontaneous social interactions uh, are possible on, on low car streets. But yeah, I, I think it's not just about the bikes. Could have been the subtitle of the book if Melissa had had her way. And she really wanted to, um, to make this book not about cycling because uh, as we say in the beginning, uh, in the introduction, that despite writing a whole book about the Dutch blueprint for urban vitality, I don't think we understood until we came here that it's not about cycling. It, the bicycle is a, a, a policy tool, a vehicle, if you will, that decision makers have used to achieve the end goal, which is a livable, low car, equitable city. And, and so uh, we shouldn't be looking at cycling as the end game and, and just trying to encourage cycling and, and create cycling infrastructure for its own sake. We need to keep that end goal in mind and, and all those amazing things that come with it uh, are possible in many different ways. And, and we were in Switzerland for a week pre-pandemic uh, and they have some really great low car cities, uh, but they don't have a lot of cycling. They've accomplished the same end goal through a great tram system, you know, really fast, frequent tram networks that run on five minute headways and, and carry loads of people around. So their city centers are similarly just as quiet and, and just as uh, pleasant, but you pick the tool that works for you. And in this, this flat, tight country, uh, the bicycle works, uh, but it isn't, as you say, just all about the cycling. It is about building cities and streets that, that work for all residents and not just the ones uh, that have a driver's license. Yeah, if I can channel uh, my good friend, Cade Benfield, it's, it's human ha habitat. You know, these are people-oriented places and it's there's a couple things that that you said there that I want to amplify and and one was that you you say in the book that you ended up walking more than you ever kind of thought talk a little bit more about that cuz that's that's a big sub theme to this yeah i mean we live so close to the old city center of delft so you know when we first moved here of course we'd naturally walk there quite frequently and be amongst all the old architecture but what an interesting thing that happened, and I think what we were reflecting on when we wrote that in the book, is actually as the first lockdown hit, walking became respite for Chris and I, our opportunity to uh, get out of the house, to be in somewhat of a natural environment if we we're in the city or get a little further and be amongst the polders and get that fresh air. But it was all this opportunity to experience the city at a whole different level that I don't think we fully anticipated because it's so easy to walk in. Oftentimes, at least where we are, it's easier. So you think about unlocking your bike, getting it out of wherever you have it stored or getting it unlocked from a post, then cycling and navigating all the other people to get into the city center, get wherever else you need to go, then lock up again. Walking is literally just putting on your shoes, walking out the door and, and going where you need to go. And so it's become at least a once a day ritual for us, if not several times a day. It's our opportunity to decompress from working from home still, but also just be around people and, and be in that social environment with everyone else who's also walking or cycling in the city. But yeah, I don't think we 
anticipated how many steps we would take in a day, <laughs> which our daughter Coralie just pointed out the uh, Apple Health. For some reason, we had never actually looked at it. And we we're like looking at where all of our step counts were over the, the course of the last year. And uh, I'd be interested to see what it would have been like when we were living in Vancouver, because we did walk a lot there, too. But now it's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, sticking with the, the walking theme, Chris, it is true, though, that there's limits to how far we can walk. And as we age, uh, you, you pointed out in the book that being able to roll, being able to get on a bike, being able to get onto a, a trike, being able to get onto a, an adapted cycle of some sort, it's a lot less stress on the joints and being able to do that. Talk a little bit more, because when it comes to assumptions that, especially in North America and, and maybe, you know, uh, heading towards Australia, New Zealand and other parts of the world, there's this assumption that no, 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 cycling's just for the young and fit. That's not the case, right? No, exactly. And as our friend Mark Treasure likes to say, the only reason that uh, the disabled don't cycle in most places in the world it's, is because it's been designed out of our streets. And, and the only people left cycling are the fit, the brave, the fast moving and the incredibly risk tolerant but when you get those conditions right and you build that inclusive infrastructure, it's really quite astounding the number of people you see cycling with various abilities and disabilities. And, and I think Melissa, more than anyone with uh, an unfortunate slip on a piece of ice and a, a broken ankle can attest that for a lot of people, the bicycle is a mobility device. It's a, uh, a rolling walking stick and uh, is far more, uh, it can be f used by far more people um, than, than presumed in, in most parts of the world. And it's the statistic here is 16% of all journeys by physically disabled people are made on some kind of cycle, whether it's a, a bicycle, a, a tricycle, uh, a hand cycle. I mean, as you said, there, there's all different types of adapted cycles, some with electric assist. And, and, uh, and even if you can't cycle, they, the space is used for people in wheelchairs and motorized wheelchairs. So this, this notion that a, a low-car city is inaccessible and, and, and not hospitable to people with disabilities is, is it couldn't be further from the truth. And the, the sites we see on a daily basis are, are really quite something. And, and the story we tell in the book is, is uh, of, of Maya, who cannot cycle, uh, cannot drive, but, but takes her scootmobile everywhere because of the amazing cycling infrastructure. Uh, it's, it almost doesn't seem fair to refer to it as cycling infrastructure because it is mobility infrastructure, it's used by anybody. And, and, and that's not an accident that that is through, you know, specific design principles, uh, and, and traffic calming policies that are put in place to allow for everybody to use a street. Yeah. And this is the reason why I love the all ages and abilities, you know, tagline or, you know, phrase or whatever, is it, 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 see how you did that, Chris, you just, you, you, you just kind of went right into the abilities side of it. So all ages and all abilities. And uh, I want to stick with all ages for just one more moment and talk a little bit about the, the Oma Feats bike and the power of that step through frame, because that's one of the things that we can see from an 
uh, an all ages perspective is as we start getting older, <clears throat> like uh, me, uh, <laughs> it's like that ability for the step through frame and the, the, the sense of stability. So not only is it just easier on the joints and you can kind of your your world sort of opens up and you can go a little bit further than just your walking distance. But uh, the fact that, you, you know, the design, the bicycle design, whether, you know, Maybe you don't need to go to a trike or a mobility device, but maybe you just need to step through frame, feel a little bit more stable to be able to to, to be able to, to to get around. And then you you sort of mentioned it uh, in in passing there, but a little electric assist. And we're seeing that you know the especially with the elderly, the e bike uptake has been you know tremendous, and. It's so fascinating to kind of see all these things and, and it just naturally flows into, uh, into that. So we're on abilities and then quite prophetic in the book, you basically acknowledge that, hey, at any given time, you could end up <laughs> needing help from yeah. an abilities percent. <laughs> Take it away, Melissa. <laughs> yeah, well, um, a lot of my Dutch colleagues scoffed when I told them what happened. Said, "Why did you go out when it was icy?" I'm like, "Well, I assumed I'm in the Netherlands. Don't you take care of your streets?" And to be fair, all the cycle tracks were clear. The side streets, not so much. And so, unfortunately, when we had a cold snap here, uh, the bike that I was riding, I like to say, disappeared from underneath me and then landed on my leg. <laughs> uh, and yeah, so for seven weeks, I was living with a broken what is it called fibula. And having to be walked around, well, basically walking around with crutches and not able to cycle. I couldn't put any weight on the leg whatsoever. And so suddenly I'm seeing the city through a whole different lens, namely from the seat of a Buckfeets that we got to borrow from another family, another expat family living here in the Netherlands. Uh, and so Chris graciously carted me around like the queen that I am. Uh, <laughs> and that was my way to still be able to experience the city uh, because otherwise I would have been literally trapped at home because crutches, if anyone's ever used them, are not easy to use. So those people that can move themselves around the city using uh, some form of crutch are pretty amazing people and should be given a lot of kudos. <laughs> but yeah, the, the bike became my mobility tool. And even with public transport, we did we took one train trip while I was a little more immobile and that was a struggle. And so, you know, understanding how cycles in whatever form can provide that freedom is really important uh, in terms of understanding why low car cities are also important. Because these tools that we see in lots of places as for sport and recreation uh, or commuting are actually, for, for me right now, walking is still a bit of a challenge. I, I'm now able to walk on my own two feet, but I can't go too far. But put me on a bike and I can cycle from here to Rotterdam, no problem. So understanding how important that low car environment is to enabling people with whether they're temporary mobility challenges or more long term, you know, is, is really, I don't think talked about enough. And I think, uh, you know, the trope that everyone who needs some sort of mobility device needs a car is thrown around too much when the opposite should be how do we enable these people to be able to own their mobility and have that independence. Yeah, because at any moment in time, we yep. could be one of those people. Yes, exactly. absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, in, in this false sense of security, uh, you know, is a 
came up a couple of times or the ability to just kind of like you're, you're a fish in water and you're just like, ah, you know, if you were on an icy street in, in your old neighborhood in Vancouver, you're, you're heightened. You would have been alert to that, but that, you know, so I think the lesson here, and we're seeing this also with the uptick in some uh, of the the crash rates with the elderly on e-bikes, is that when you combine the speed with the false sense of security, things can happen. Mm -hmm. But the point is, is that when you have an incredibly safe system from from a global perspective. It, it, it's a relatively minor occurrence. It's not a, you know, it, it's not typically a, you know, a, a terrible thing. Like, for instance, the example you used with your son was that, yes, he went down, but he didn't, you know, he didn't go down in, next to fast moving cars and, you know, uh, have the unfortunate outcome that so many in North America and, and across Australia, New Zealand and other countries have where, you, you have cycle infrastructure next to and pedestrian infrastructure next to uh, these behemoth fast moving vehicles. So, yeah, that's I mean, that's in, incredibly good point. And, and yeah, the idea of this one sided uh, accident that happens uh, it, that I can't remember the Dutch phrase. Maybe Chris remembers better than I do. But yeah, because of these safe systems, as you said, John, when you fall, it's not that you're in this uh, like immediately dangerous environment. Oftentimes when we fall off our bikes here, or if an elderly person falls off their bike, they're on the cycle track all by themselves. There's very little risk that someone might hit them as they fall, or it could be a lot more serious, you know? So, so it, it just takes a little bit of that risk and that danger out of the equation and makes it much more comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is one of the things that I think is, one of the great lessons that are coming out of all of this is that uh, uh, the motor vehicle speed is such a critical, critical factor. And it's a reoccurring theme that pops up in multiple locations within this text, as well as your first text. Uh, and so and, and serious injuries and, and, and fatalities, both for uh, vulnerable street space users as well as motor vehicle drivers is critical. So we have to be able to bring calm the, you know, the traffic down. Gee, that's kind of part of your title of your book, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) So getting back to the all ages thing, one of the other sub themes there is actually the, 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 the second chapter. And that's this concept of connectedness. Who'd like to dive a little bit more into what we're talking about there. Um, yeah, I, I mean, we've already mentioned Peter, uh, our neighbor, and, and for those who haven't read the book yet, Peter's a gentleman that we bumped into a few times on our street, having first moved to the Netherlands as a couple of non-Dutch speaking Canadians and really got to know him and, and through an incident where Melissa accidentally locked herself out of the apartment, became quite uh, connected to him and, and would quite often see him subsequently in the city center and on the street. And, and around that time, you know, we were, we were thinking back to the research of, of uh, Dr. Donald Appleyard and, and, and now his son, Bruce, who, you know, a long time ago in the 1970s, looked at these streets in San Francisco and really made this correlation between the traffic, uh, the speed and volume of traffic on a street and the uh, social connections on that street. 
in terms of the number of friends and acquaintances that those people had. And it really drove home to us that we had luckily landed on a street that was specifically traffic calm. So there were far fewer cars parked and moving on the street. Uh, and as a result, we, we noticed a, uh, a cohesion amongst the neighbors, a sense of community, a sense of pride that really was lacking in other places that we've lived in the world. Uh, and that's not an accident. And it's, again, not a cultural thing. The, the Dutch aren't more community-minded than any other culture in the world. It, it's more uh, the design of their streets gives them uh, a reason to be outside, outside their front door, talking to their neighbors, stopping and chatting, uh, even doing minor repairs, creating seating and plants and, uh, and customizing their front stoop. These are all products of a, a low-car environment. And, and uh, when we talk about this loneliness epidemic that Melissa hinted at earlier, uh, we do have to look at how our streets are contributing to that because by living on really noisy, stressful, high-traffic streets, we're not wanting to go outside. We're living on the, in the rear portion of our houses subconsciously uh, and not interacting with our neighbors and, and uh, any acquaintances on the street. And so uh, traffic is making us antisocial, I guess is, is the short way of, of putting this. Um, and, and we really need to start looking at making these decisions in a more holistic way instead of counting cars and, and prioritizing the, the speed, their speed and efficiency over the people that live along these corridors. Yeah, I think it, I mean, I Chris said it so succinctly, I'm not sure how much more I can add, but I think one of the things that as we were researching the book, we came to understand uh, is the importance of social connections, not just in terms of not feeling lonely, but also in terms of the health implications that has for us. Uh, and, you know, there are studies out there that have shown that when we have these, even if it's a small social circle, when we have these connections to the people around us, some of them quite tight, some of them more peripheral, it releases those endorphins and that oxytocin in us that helps us to heal. And so if we're talking about creating uh, cities that are more human, we're all, you know, we should be talking about how we can create healing cities that, you know, ultimately help us be healthier people, which you know, I, I don't know what an argument against that could be. But when we're moving around in our private automobiles, sheltered from everyone, we're losing that social connection and that ability to have those human interactions. And I don't think there's any more prominent uh, an example of that than us living through this pandemic where we've all been socially isolated from each other uh, a lot in a lot of cases. Uh, even Chris and I, you know, I, we are fortunate to be with each other, to have jobs that we can keep working throughout the pandemic, to have two children. So we have this core group of people, but we both have experienced moments of feeling lonely, of feeling a little bit, I think the new term I'm hearing is languishing because we don't have that human connection to really bring out the positive, happy feelings that make us feel better, both uh, physically and mentally. Yeah. And you guys mentioned it in, in chapter 10 again, it's, and you mentioned it briefly there, uh, Chris, in, in, in those high, high moments, it's like these, these are little, uh, micro connections that you have out on the street and you're recognizing people, especially if you're like Peter, you're, <laughs> you're out on the street, you know, frequently you have a history within the neighborhood heck he was a teacher. So he, you know, he knows generations of folks, but these can be casual, you know, uh, you know, interactions as well. And that sort of, uh, 
touches upon some of the other things that you you talk about, and and that's the this concept of the trusting city, uh, and and that gets facilitated by the fact that there's these there's opportunities and these there's these uh, these interactions going on. Dive a little deeper into what you mean by the trusting city, Chris. Yeah, I think this was again something that we we noticed very quickly was the the general lack of traffic lights and stop signs in this city. Uh, and it really struck us coming from a place in Vancouver where there's seemingly a stop sign and a traffic light every hundred meters on every uh, every block. And, and it makes it difficult for a number of reasons for people on, of, on foot or bike. But it was a product of living in this low car environment where 80% of all journeys are made on foot or bicycle. Everyone is traveling at such a slow speed that these uh, interactions at intersections can be navigated and negotiated uh, through cooperation. Uh, so through eye contact, through hand gestures, through subtle little cues that we give each other, the cyclists and pedestrians act like a uh, mermation of, of starlings, monitoring the position of each other, looking chaotic from the outside, but it's really this poetic ballet that takes place. Uh, and as a result, you learn to make con eye contact with your fellow citizens, you learn to cooperate with each other, you are exposed to people outside of your social demographic, your ethnicity, outside of uh, your regular bubble that you would normally interact with, you're, you're exposed to the proverbial other. And so it, in our minds, and, and the research is just starting to tap into this, is building a society that uh, is learning to build consensus and trust each other, and, and then ultimately, you know, create a more uh, welcoming and, and cooperative place versus uh, a very car-based transportation system where you're using traffic lights. Uh, everybody in a motor vehicle is competing with each other and, and every other road user is a, a barrier to where you're going. And, and uh, I think there's, again, very subtle psychological ways that that impacts, impacts us as, as human beings because we suddenly, well, I, I guess the best place, best way to put it is when you're in a car, you want everyone else to go away. And when you're on a bicycle, you want more people around you. And, and so, yeah, there's maybe another of the millions of reasons to build more, more cycle-friendly cities is uh, this idea of, of cooperation versus competition. It makes me think back to the, the work of Hans Monderman and Ben Hamilton Bailey and shared space and reinforcing the uh, behavior of drivers to stay engaged, connected, communicate, you know, look, looking for, for uh, body language movements and, and eye, making eye contact. And, and it just reinforces that, that concept of, yes, when we're able to, to be a low-car city, when we're able to bring motor vehicle speeds down, you're, you're able to have a situation where you can have, you know, a, a more trusting environment and uh and and i certainly experienced that um you know in delft especially in the older sections of of the the city uh that are much narrower streets and it is shared space and you have that sort of ballet that's happening and you're you're communicating and some of the 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 more uh, intense moments from intense from a, a number of cyclists and pedestrians and whatever and everybody just kind of brings their speed down but you've got those little little connectedness and you're looking for eye contact and you know little micro movements and the fact that everybody's moving so slow you can navigate you know so much better especially if you're on 
a comfortable upright Dutch bike. <laughs> you can do that. Now, Melissa, you you threw a word in when, when we were talking uh, there a moment ago, and you said healing and well-being is a big part of this. And that really dives into the therapeutic uh, chapter. T- talk a little bit more about what you're talking about there. Yeah. Well, I think going back to when we were living in Canada, for us, finding those therapeutic moments was very much about getting into nature. Not that it isn't still now. I love being amongst trees and next to the water and put me at the seaside and I'm the happiest I will ever be. But that was, it was to do that, we had to leave the city. We had to go to the mountains. We had to go to the west coast of Vancouver Island to really have that opportunity for regeneration and therapy. And one of the things that we have found living here is that those opportunities don't require us necessarily to leave anymore. So, you know, we alluded at the beginning that the city is quiet uh, and we can hear bird songs and we can walk around comfortably in the city center or in our neighborhood. And these all become opportunities for regeneration and therapy, essentially. Uh, You know, I talked about it with the walking. It became the, every time we go for a walk, it's an opportunity to de-stress and so when we have these environments with fewer cars, you know, we, like I said, we experience it in North America in nature, but now in our own city, it becomes so much more healing for people because they don't have to, regardless of your means, you don't have to escape. Leaving your front door is, is a joy as opposed to a stress. And there, there's a lot to be said for that. You know, we don't want to be, we leave to go outside to be social or to be amongst people or even to have a moment to breathe ourselves. And when our cities are so loud or so uh, congested with cars or the environment is so uh, is such that it's dangerous to be outside, there's no opportunity for uh, to not be stressed. And that just makes us unhealthy, both mentally, obviously with the increased stress, but also physically in terms of the links from of stress to heart conditions, to uh, poor sleep patterns, to diabetes, to physical, you know, lack of health. Like, there's so many more implications to living in a very high car, high stress environment. Um, and I, as I'm saying all this, I'm looking outside and it's incredibly windy. And one of these wonderful little things that we've learned since moving here is this idea of going out for free snooze or a fresh nose or, or, or a wind bath. And this idea that the wind washes away everything and it's it's so therapeutic and you know it seems funny at first but then when you go and experience it you're like yeah the wind just blew all of my stress away and now I can get on with my day and I don't have to go into the mountains to have that anymore I can experience that in the quiet of the city that we live in yeah and and you guys discovered a new mode yeah we're uh we're boat people now and we're we're advocating for (laughs) building the paddling city Uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is a very, perhaps a very Dutch opportunity, but we, last year, Melissa decided to treat herself to a couple of inflatable kayaks for her uh, 40th birthday. That's not a secret, that's in the book, right, uh, Melissa? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, we've taken to, to getting out on the canals. Now that we live on a canal, it's obviously much easier. But there are these vast networks of waterways that take us all the way, if we were so inclined, all the way down to the River Moss. Uh, but uh, it's another, again, another form of therapy, another form of uh, physical activity, another form of 
de-stressing. And, uh, and it is in part because the Dutch cities held on to that space as important. There were proposals in a lot of Dutch cities to rip out the canals and replace it with car space. Utrecht famously did uh, and, and canceled the project after it built a kilometer and it is now in the process of re restoring that waterway. But in Amsterdam, there were uh, pro uh, proposals to uh, build parking and, and through roads in the canals. But luckily, the, the, the common sense prevailed and, and these waterways still run through the cities and uh, uh, we are more than happy to take advantage of them. Yeah. And what better way to experience your city from a different perspective? And as you said, it, an opportunity, uh, because water is incredibly relaxing and therapeutic to be on, near, around, uh, and, and so, and in. So just, you know, I, 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 I was pleasantly surprised as somebody who used to surf a lot and spend a lot of time in the water and on the water. Uh, I was like, yes, that's awesome. That's, that's really cool. So I believe the hearing chapter is, and we alluded to it just a, a little bit earlier. And I think Chris is, is, was it you that just really had this epiphany? I mean, what do you want to say about the hearing city? Well, I, I think on, it, on the surface, noise pollution and, and the hearing city sounds very superficial, that it's a nice to have, but uh, we've dug up some research and there are some really concerning uh, connections between the prominence of noise pollution and really serious health impacts to our, uh, well, Melissa mentioned earlier, our cardiovascular system, our sleep patterns, our uh, blood pressure and, 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 and the like. And, uh, because it's an ambient stress, because it's something that we absorb without processing or thinking about, it's doing untold damage to us as a species. And, and it is, as we, we point out, one of the more prevalent pollutants that human beings are exposed to. And the really unfortunate thing is that electric cars aren't going to fix this problem. At, at above a certain speed, about 55 kilometers per hour, uh, the noise of the tire friction exceeds the engine noise and will be even worse with electric cars because they're heavier and require wider tires. So the, that additional friction that takes place is going to continue to create noisy cities unless we address it at the root level and, and we spell out a number of policy decisions that cities can make to, to start taking it seriously. Yeah, yeah. And I reflect back on when I look at the, the, the built environment in our communities, I, I see it through the lens of, uh, from an active town's perspective, I see it through the lens of activity assets that are out there. And when we look at the, the health benefits of being able to have access and gain access to these activity assets, context matters. A, a, a trail or a bikeway, et cetera, that, that has nature sounds and access to low volumes and you can hear the, the birds, the health impacts are so much greater than, than the, you know, the stress response of having a perfectly fine, perfectly well-designed activity asset, but it happens to be next to roaring traffic. You know, it, it's just the context matters so incredibly much. And so I, I was so glad to see this as part of it, because when we think about pollution, it's more than just, you know, what's going out into the air. 
And I'm glad you mentioned the additional friction with the heavier e-cars, because that's that's one of those uh, another sub theme that, that you talk about in terms of you know, impacts to the environment and and that type of stuff. I believe it was in chapter nine under resilient cities. Uh, is that correct? Where we, we talk a little bit about the fact that we've got a, a, a additional challenge of these heavier vehicles, wider tires. It's not only the, the pollution noise, but you also have the pollution from the tires and the brake pads and things of that nature. So now that I, I've sent us in the direction of a resilient city, Melissa, you want to dive into that? Yeah. One of the really interesting things that we discovered, you know, when we think of resiliency at, at this point in time, oftentimes we refer to a city's ability to bounce back, to come back to the way it was. So even now when we're talking about pandemic response, how do we bounce back to the normal that we had before? And I think most of us are, are reaching a point now where we realize that that normal that we had, it doesn't exist anymore. We're now going to go into a new normal. And that's something that Dr. Judith Wang that we interviewed for this resiliency chapter points out is that there are two types of resiliency and this other is is essentially traveling into a, a new stability regime. So this idea that the planet that we live on has always evolved in some way based on the environmental impacts around it. And one of the ways that cities can be resilient is not necessarily bouncing back to what it was before, but being able to adapt to a new sense of normal. And I think that that's a really important message that we need to be thinking about as we move ahead and, and there's more you know, climate-related impacts to our cities is how do we uh, adapt our cities in a new way? How do we evolve to make sure that we can continue to enjoy or start to enjoy a higher quality of life. And so that means moving away from auto-dependent travel to one that is more human scale, because that is going to be the way that we move forward as a species and be able to keep enjoying the city as if we can adapt. So that's, I think that's a lot of the work that Chris and I do is, is helping cities figure out how do you adapt to the context of what it's like here in the Netherlands in terms of street design, adapt the cities and, and streets in North America, for example, to be something that is more resilient in the, in the years to come. Yeah. I mean, you, you lay out sort of the difference between an engineering approach versus an ecological approach. Uh, why don't you dive a little bit more into that, Chris? Yeah, I know. Like Melissa said, I think there's a, a misunderstanding of, of what resilience is and, and what it can be. And, and uh, as we have seen post-pandemic, there's this rush to return to the status quo without even considering, can we establish a new normal and, and uh, take lessons that we've learned during lockdown and apply them to our daily lives? We saw, uh, and we when we started writing this book, Cities around the world were suddenly stripped of their cars and, and people were out on their front porch uh, or on their front curb experiencing their street at an entirely different level. We can have that 24-7 if we so choose. It's not a pandemic-specific condition. And the same with the uh, other adaptations that we've made to deal with this absolutely terrible situation in terms of the outdoor dining, the, the parking lots that have been reestablished as terraces, the on-street parking spaces and streets that have been reclaimed for social spaces and, and dining spaces, the pop-up bike infrastructure that, that's uh, been built by certain cities to um, make up for lost public transportation 
capacity. These are all things that we can permanently build into our cities if we so choose. It's, this is not a short-term solutions to a short-term crisis. These are things that we should be thinking uh, are long-term solutions to future crises because, unfortunately, the science tells us that uh, this is just the beginning of a series of shocks and, and external forces to our cities that we're going to have to weather. And, and uh, a very fragile car-dependent system is not going to do very well in those types of scenarios. As you were, you were speaking right there, I, I, I started thinking a little bit about how this chapter may have evolved uh, if there was no pandemic. Um, we, you know, clearly the uh, the section that talked about climate change and 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 the issue that was there is 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 significant, but the the ready made examples of you know responding to the current pandemic or the current uh, challenge at hand was was definitely a, a major sub theme to to that chapter. Yeah, it's actually, I mean, it's it's a funny point though, John is when we were writing this book, as we began, and suddenly we're in lockdown, and everyone's experiencing everything we're going to write about, we had this moment where we said, why are we even writing this book anymore? It's done. People are now experiencing it. But now it becomes that not just us talking through pages of what is possible, people have now experienced that. And so I think it only helps to reinforce what we've what we've put in the book is that you know, we've now in various places experienced a lot of these quality of life improvements we're talking about in each chapter. Now is the opportunity to take what we've experienced and make it much more permanent. Yeah, absolutely. We we also saw, you know, at least here in North America, you know, other things, you know, bubbling up and 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 what we were dealing with, including the Black Lives uh, movement and and the challenges that uh, are there in terms of, you know, out in public spaces, not all people are, are treated equal. And you have a chapter that that talks about the fact that, you know, most of our what we see in the built environment was, you know, has been designed by dudes. <laughs> Talk a little bit about that, Melissa, and how do we change it? Well, I think the first step is acknowledging the problem. <laughs> and the second step is to bring more people that don't look like the average economic white man to the table to help make some of these decisions. Uh, and I think if you look at uh, cities like Paris, for example, or you look at the country of New Zealand where they have women as leaders, you're starting to see changes to much more human-centered approaches. Uh, and it's not to say that women are inherently better at doing that. It just comes from a lived experience. Uh, so we, as women, experience the, di the city very differently from you gentlemen, for example. And so we bring those lived experiences to inform the work that we do, just as your experience informs that as well. But what's important is that we balance that. So whether it's women, whether it's people of color, whether it's people from the LGBTQ plus community, the disabled, the elderly, children, everybody, if we're designing cities for everyone, they need to be involved in the conversation, whether that's at a professional level or engagement level. Until we have that understanding of us as a whole, someone will be left out uh, and and then we do our cities a disservice so yeah how do we fix the male dominated city to be more feminist bring women to the table how do we fix the system to be more racially inclusive bring people of all backgrounds to the table yeah let's give a solid example of what 
it, it looks like when it, there's sort of this male approach at looking at what at what a trip is. Can you dive a little more deeply? Because you do a really good job of talking about something uh, called trip chaining. Yeah, I don't think we think about it when we're moving around the city. I mean, I know that I didn't until I started researching it. But, you know, when for example, it's not meant to be uh, detrimental towards Chris, but when he was commuting for work, it was to work and then to home again. Uh, once in a while, building childcare into that, but most of the time that responsibility and not for any ill will would land on me based on schedule or however. So my trip would involve home to school or childcare, then to work and then to pick up the kids to take them to after school activities, then to do groceries and then back home again. And so in that trip, round trip from home uh, to home again, I've probably made four, five, six different stops. And uh, what is special about living here is those trips are facilitated by a system that is less focused on car trips and more focused on walking and cycling and making those small trips much more easy for women, but also for anyone else, you know, for, for kids, for men, even <laughs> uh, for our non-binary folks, everyone gets to benefit from the ability of being able to connect various points in our day and not just thinking about how do I get from home to work and home again as fast and efficient as possible. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, there's an insidious legacy that, that, you know, comes from this because we have a situation, especially in North America, where there's this over-reliance on, uh, the commute trip data, you know, it's like, yeah, but that's not all the trips. I mean, when we when we rattle off statistics and say that, hey, even in North American cities, you know, a significant portion of all trips being made are inherently bikeable. They're, you know, less than five miles. You know, it's like, you know, part of the, the challenge, of course, is that that male approach of it's about the commute from home to work and back. It's like, yeah, we're still living with the legacy of that. And uh, the amount of data that we have historically collected has been an overemphasis on that office commute. Yeah. A lot of money gets spent to fix congestion that occurs at peak hours by those trips to work. Uh, money that could be spent improving public transportation for other communities. So it's, it's, it's really become this, this money pit for cities. And, and the example we use in the book is the city of Toronto is about to spend 50% of its transportation budget replacing one single highway in the city. It's just outrageous <laughs> to make uh, 6% of, of their commuters happy. And, and it, as you say, it's, it's mostly uh, affluent men that have the most resources that are making the journey work. But because we don't value the care journeys that, that uh, are still disproportionately being made by women, unpaid care work that they're doing, we don't see uh, as a society it worthwhile to invest in that type of infrastructure that enables them to walk, cycle, or take public transportation to and from uh, all those different chains on that trip. Yeah. Well, you just said it there, you know, we're, we're investing in, you know, serious money in serious things like the economy and jobs. So let's talk about the prosperous city. Continue with that, Chris. Yeah, this was really spurred by a statistic that we read that was that 81% of the country uh, in the Netherlands is within a seven and a half kilometer bike ride, basically, of a, of a public transportation hub. And 
it really got us thinking that how the, the bicycle and the train system combines to provide almost everybody with access to the same affordable housing, to the same job opportunities, to healthcare, education, everything they need without the expense of a private automobile. And it's something we don't talk about nearly enough, I think, is this 12,000 US dollars a year now that families, uh, people are forced to spend just to participate in society and by making smart collective investments in cycling infrastructure and walking infrastructure and public transportation, we can give people, more people, access to the same opportunities uh, without having them break their own personal uh, budget. Uh, and also, as a society, we don't have to be spending billions and trillions on widening uh, highways and, and to make the peak hour trip uh, a little bit more pleasant for the people that have the most access to mobility. So this came down to, yeah, uh, how the, the cycling and the, the tra transport networks work in, in synergy with one another. And I think it's still a, a huge part of the success story here in the Netherlands is providing that same door-to-door -door journey without actually requiring a car. And we, we share the fact that we're now two years, two plus years living in the Netherlands without even needing a driver's license. So uh, whereas we were living car light in Vancouver, we still were accessing car share and car rentals. Here we haven't been in a car or needed to be in a car since we first moved here. And that's that's quite speaks volumes to the, the coverage that you get through the, the bicycle train system. Yeah, yeah. And how empowering it is to be able to have the ability to get around the, the, the freedom of mobility that comes when you can, you know, jump on a bike, have a network, a cycling network that, you know, active mobility network that can get you to uh, various transit stops. And then from there, you know, the world's your oyster. You can go anywhere. So incredibly empowering. Melissa, I'll have you kind of, you know, go to the conclusion. Let's let's talk a little bit about this final chapter because it's it's part of what you both do is exporting this concept of the low car city. And yes, I know you, you you both have jobs where you maybe focus a little bit more on a pinpoint of cycling infrastructure, but this book is is not about the bike. We already talked about that. This is about the concept of of uh, low car and the empowerment that comes with that. So let's talk about exporting the low car city. Yeah, well, I think in everything Chris and I do, it's all about making cities better. And I think oftentimes, at least for me, what I think of is how do I make the city where my parents live better, where my sister and my nieces live? And what is so important for us is that these ideas aren't seen as, oh, this is like it's the common trope. Uh, it's the Netherlands. It's just different there. And what we really want to emphasize with the book and the reason that we look at a lot of the health impacts that come from high car cities as, a per, as opposed to fewer cars in our cities is because we really want to make that compelling case of why this is important to invest in in any city. And just like with the first book, we provide tangible examples of how Dutch ideas can be applied in non-Dutch cities. So in the suburban city of Kitchener, Ontario, where we grew up, a lot of these ideas are easily transferable there and can have an incredible impact on the people that live there by 
making traffic calm neighborhoods, you then bring people back out to the front of their house where people can start to get to know their neighbors again. And you have those social interactions. I think of our nieces and, you know, uh, right now they're three and one respectively when they're school age, being able to walk and cycle to their neighborhood school. And that means making an environment that has fewer cars and really enabling that freedom that we so often argue for, we collectively as a society working for mobility, we're arguing for kids to have more play, but we're not following that up with action uh, from the design perspective, from the policy perspective. So it's it's really what we're what we want to do is make it so that people don't have to move here to enjoy that. It is possible in context to create these cities and create these towns in Canada, in the US, in Australia, in New Zealand, in France, in Germany, you know, everywhere can enjoy these things if we start to reprioritize what's important to us and and really look back to the human collective as opposed to moving around comfortably, quote unquote, in cars. Yeah. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that we can't say goodbye without leaving the audience with? We've covered all 10 chapters. It, it comes down to, as, as you say, it's not about the bike. Uh, we are, we've been kind of pigeonholed as the cycling folks. And, and yes, okay, we now work for cycling uh, focused organizations, but we need to stop looking at the bicycle as the, as the end goal and, and, and start talking about low car cities. We obviously wanted to write this book explaining the why but not the traditional whys like climate change and congestion and physical inactivity and, and all these typical things that we're aware of when it comes to creating more cycling, but these really hidden uh, effects of creating these types of environments. And I think we succeeded in doing so, but we're, time will tell whether, whether uh, audiences and, and, and decision makers and readers uh, agree with us. All right, Melissa, what do you think? How, how have we done? I think we've done pretty well. And I, I think, yeah, I just would reiterate, you know, we spend so much time, at least in the Western world, focusing on well-being. It's it's the word, you know, we are looking for our, our well-being. And so we do things like we go on retreats and, and we, I mean, I'm just as guilty. We do yoga on a regular basis or, you know, we do all these things to make us feel better but we don't take into account how our physical environment is causing negative harm. And, you know, we've had these, I think Chris and I both these emotional responses uh, since moving here about how the city has improved our well-being. And it's not through uh, any sort of new age type <laughs> approach. It's, it's simply just being in a place where a lot of the stress that we had in Vancouver, which we've said before, we loved living there, but we were both surprised at how life improved for us, how much more calm we felt, uh, how much more we felt connected to our our state, our sense of place here, because we are now in an environment that allows us to experience the city without being surrounded by cars all the time. Yeah, I'll, I'll channel that a little bit because you you talk about it in the book of. You probably didn't know the data and statistics until you dove in to try to understand this. The number of motor vehicles, you know, passing by your your household within 100 meters. What what was that number again, Chris? Do you remember those? 
Yeah, I sure do, because it still haunts my dreams that we were living in that type of environment without even knowing it. But because we were at the crossroads of four arterial roads or, or on this island, this metaphorical island, there was, uh, when we dug into the city of Vancouver's traffic counts, upwards of 150,000 cars a day traveling within 100 meters of our East Vancouver apartment. And we've since gone through the city of Delft's traffic counts, and that number is about 1,500. So. 1% of the traffic in our daily lives. And this is this book is a result, the, these uh, you know, knock-on effects are a result of living in that type of environment. So now, now that I know that you've moved since you, uh, you know, wrote this book, you know, you, you've, you're, you're in an even quieter neighborhood. If you were to guess uh, within 100 meters of your current household, uh, is, it is it 1,500 motor vehicles or is it a lot less? No, I would say it's it's fairly close. We didn't move that far, actually. So the one kind of uh, distributor road that carries almost all of those 1,500 cars is still within 100 meters of us. But we are on a completely car-free street now and, and sitting out on our front porch, watching the bicycles and the boats and the, and the pedestrians um, go by is, is really something. It's, uh, we pinch ourselves every day. We talked when we were moving here about being stuck in bike traffic uh, for the first time when we moved here and, and being part and seeing bike congestion. And now that we live on a walking only street, we experience walking traffic <laughs> right outside our front door, which is actually pretty pleasant to be around and, and has led to a lot of those high, high moments. One thing I will give the credit to the Dutch for is they are very cordial people. Even if they have no idea who you are, they will always say hello when they're going by. So, yeah, now we're in this funny situation where if it's a beautiful sunny day, it is impossible to sit on our front step and not say hi every five minutes. <laughs> I didn't realize it was a walking only street. Yeah. <laughs> wow. We're, uh, yeah, we're on the quiet side of the Bouton Watersloot. Unfortunately, the other side of the street still has cars, but we're crossing our fingers that in the next 20 years that might change. <laughs> it's a beautiful book, and I think everybody should uh, definitely go out and get that book. I'm going to produce this and get it out before you guys hit publication, but remind me of uh, when it is being released into the wilds. So Curbing Traffic, A Human Case for Fewer Cars in Our Lives, is officially released on the 29th of June. Island Press will be shipping pre-orders, uh, hopefully by early June. And we have a promo code set up. It's uh, BRUNTLET in all caps. Uh, if you want to order directly from islandpress.org. If you're in the EU, we have a separate promo code set up for Marston Books, which is the EU distributor. That is on our website at uh, modacitylife.com and I'm sure we can put that in the show notes uh, but otherwise it's available where you get your books your ebooks your audiobooks your local bookshop uh, hopefully just ask them for the title and and know that it's uh, it's published by Ellen Press and they should be able to get it to you fantastic that's great okay so final question for you both and these are quick answers uh, from each of you it's really a, a bit of advice from you, given your the context of your parents, your parents, your uh, accidental advocates, <laughs> your authors now, you're now professionals working in the industry, in the field. But for somebody who's just tuning in and listening to this, and they're inspired to make a difference in their neighborhood, on their street, in their community, what advice would you have? Melissa, start us off. My advice would be to find out 
if your city offers uh, grants to do small interventions on your street and get together with your community and do it. Uh, we see all the time that those small temporary installations often have a huge impact on not just changing the street, but changing the sense of community. And so I would say that's an excellent place to start. Yeah, I'll amplify that and just say from a human behavior perspective, it's one thing for someone to say or describe it. But if you can give somebody the opportunity to actually feel what it's like to be on a traffic calm street, it's so much more, you know, powerful and impactful, which to your point in the book, and, and we mentioned it in passing here, the situation that emerged during the pandemic is, you know, people started rediscovering what streets are for and, and, and that's powerful to be able to, to feel that. So love it. Small interventions. It also goes by the name of tactical urbanism frequently. It's that concept of, you know, give people the opportunity to touch it, feel it and really experience it. Chris. Yeah, I, I think there's a, a general misconception that these types of initiatives, uh, specifically inconveniencing cars, is unpopular. And I think if we really look at the, the, the polls that are done and the politics of making walkable, bikeable, human-friendly cities, it's actually really popular. And, and it's just the challenge is drowning out the, the vocal minority, latching on to that silent majority, forming consensus coalitions, all these different organizations that exist that might be your ally, finding allies in this space, supporting politicians that are going to champion your cause, and don't come at this issue assuming that it's uh, controversial or unpopular, because I, I think as we try to communicate, this is about the health and well-being of our children, this is about the health and well-being of our elderly population, uh, the baby boom generation is getting older and older, this is about an issue that benefits absolutely everybody, uh, and we should have faith in our arguments and our ideas and appreciate that it is uh, the right thing to do and, and have more confidence uh, moving ahead. So that's, that's my holy pulpit for the day, but uh, my hope is that, that we can stop thinking of, of, of these issues as, as uh, being niche and being too small to actually get, get them on the agenda in, in cities and towns all around the world. Yeah. And if I were to amplify something um, from my experience in <laughs> and doing this sort of transformation stuff for over 30 years, it's for the message to the leaders is show leadership, stick to it. Yes, the complainers are going to complain and the haters are going to hate. Show the leadership, give some cover to the staff and the administrators that are trying to implement these things. And the message to the community members Give the leaders some cover. Let them know and speak up and be vocal and let them know that, no, this really is. It's not enough to be the silent majority. You need to speak up and let your voices be heard because if it's just, if the leaders are only hearing from the haters, then, then they have an undue influence on leadership and on the politicians. So that's my bully pulpit right there. <laughs> Yay. Melissa, Chris, I'm so excited for you both. This is going to be so cool. This is going to be a great book. And uh, once it's out there, it's going to be a one-two punch. It's going to be the why and it's going to be the how. And uh, I can't wait to see what the next uh, volume is going to be. Oh, Thank no, you no, so no. much for no joining more books. me. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're both shaking their heads. <laughs> well, hey, thank you so very much for joining me on the Active Towns podcast. 
It's our pleasure, John. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us, John. It's always our pleasure. Thank you all so much for tuning in to episode number 79 of the Active Towns podcast. Again, due to the length of our conversation, I'll keep this quite brief. Please be sure to head over to the landing page for this episode out on our website at activetowns.org to check out the beautiful photography that Melissa and Chris sent our way. And I do hope that each and every one of you will get a copy of Curbing Traffic, the human case for fewer cars in our lives, published by Island Press. It's truly a beautiful and inspiring book. Okay, that's all for this week's episode. So until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers.